And part of my story is that my wife Kathy and I have been here at Warehouse since uh, its very beginning, uh, more than a few years ago. And I would just uh, would like to start by saying, whether this is your first day here or you've been here for almost 20 years, uh, welcome. This is our place. This is a place, um, I think this is a faith community. Since I have been here from the beginning, I, can, I think I have some beat on this, so I'm going to put myself up here as an expert. Um, this is a place where you can be real or more real than you can probably be in most, most faith communities. So I just want to welcome you to that today. And in that vein, uh, what I want to let you know is that uh, uh, our friend Wade up here is drumming, hasn't drummed in 15 years. So um, he's vulnerable. If anything goes wrong, blame it on him. Uh, yeah, so that whole thing at the front, Dusty, you missed your chance. <laughs> We're going to talk about shame for about the next eight weeks, it's that experience of being ashamed and what it might like be like to be unashamed, which is something maybe you're not familiar with. And I want to invite you to not being ashamed of being ashamed. That is a human experience, right? I want to invite you over the next eight or nine weeks or eight, eight more weeks to sort of take your shame out and have a nice look at it. Um, because you're human, and part of the human experience is to be ashamed. And the typical response to shame or being ashamed is to withdraw. So when you're in those moments when somebody says something, a conversation is uncomfortable, and uh, you crack a joke, that's shame, believe it or not. Uh, when, when things are getting a little too heated and you try to make it copacetic, that's you withdrawing, and that, that's a kind of feeling of being ashamed. The shame is... Remarkable. It's remarkable. It is also an amazingly wonderful thing. Shame is the invitation or the opportunity to withdraw and to be covered and to be safe and to go through a period of winter and to awaken into the spring. And so what I'm holding out for us, um, all of us individually and as a church, is that over the next eight weeks, as we look at people who woke up from their shame and became unashamed that we will be inspired as well. So we're going to be looking at people like uh, Irenaeus today who uh, became unashamed of Jesus or Augustine who became unashamed of grace or uh, Julian of Norwich who became unashamed of love. Martin Luther who became unashamed of sin. That one, that's amazing. Carl uh, Barth, who became unashamed of revelation. Mother Teresa, who became unashamed of the poor. Martin Luther King Jr., who became unashamed of nonconformity. And Billy Graham, who became unashamed of making a proclamation. And not all these are going to resonate with you, but maybe two or three will. And when they do, that's you being invited to wake up from your shame and to become unashamed. I want to tell two stories real quick that will, I think, pull us together and then talk about the lament, the song that the band is going to do. Shame isn't just about being ashamed of the things that you've done that are wrong. Shame, shame is a fun, funky thing. I have this one memory as a kid of how when my dad would touch me or when he would show public affection, I would slap his hand away. And uh, my dad died younger than I would have preferred, and you know, I'd do anything to have that now. But why was I ashamed of love? 
kind of affection. I mean, what was that? And you have that too, and left to go, those, that kind of shame becomes regret. And we don't want that. Because if you pile on too much shame, one day I'll be too heavy for the resurrection. So shame is okay, it's an invitation, but in shame is also this invitation to become unashamed. And that's what's going to happen for you here over the next eight weeks, starting with Mike Laurie, who's our associate pastor, as he talks with us about a man named Irenaeus and how Irenaeus became unashamed of Jesus, what that meant for his life, and maybe out of that you can take some clues for what that will mean about you. Yesterday I went running up in the mountains, went up the Blue Ridge Parkway and ran, in a brag, um, so here it comes. Um, so then I'm running along the parkway there, I, I, I was uh, noticing this really huge oak tree, and I've never noticed this before, I just probably haven't caught the timing just right before, but it had just, it was just like all the all of the acorns must have dropped out of the tree <laughs> all at one time because everywhere on the ground were, were the acorns. You could barely see anything else. And because there was, a, there was a heavy mist and there was some rain starting to kick up, the leaves were starting to fall. And what I realized looking at them was that they fall, they hit the ground, and then the leaves cover them, and they die. And... When winter ends, some of them, a lot of them, will put down roots. And some of those that put down roots will become trees. And they'll increase, they'll, that pattern will go over and over. I want, to, want that to soak in for you that shame is an invitation to, when, after you've fallen from the tree to lie and to rest and to be covered. And when the time comes to sprout, and this is your time. We're going to start with the lament, which is a song which asks a question. We used to, when we did this song, Warehouse, years and years ago, we mused that a lot of churches bashed on this song, What If God Were One of Us? And we just mused that other churches bashed on it because we thought that Joan Osborne had just stole their song <laughs> or stole their question. This is a great lament, What If God Was One of Us? Welcome to Warehouse. That was awesome, and what was awesome about it was um, sitting in the back and looking this way and looking this way and seeing all of you people singing along to that song, right? Like everybody sort of knows that song. Do you guys remember 1995? It, I was, yeah, right? It, it feels like it was yesterday, right? Right. What was happening in 95? I was graduating from college. Uh, Bob Gluck just joined AARP, and like, and so, like, it, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, right? And, uh, and, but it, but it was, it was a little while ago. But in 1995, Joan Osborne releases a song, and uh, it's all over the radio, it's all over MTV. Um, MTV is this channel on, on the cable. And they used to play music videos, and, uh, and I think it's there. I don't know what they do, some catfish or something. I don't know what they're doing, but it, it was everywhere. And if we remember, uh, what, if you can remember back to, harken back to this controversy, Joan Osborne, I, she didn't write the song, but she collaborated with it, and she released it and produced it and put it out there, and uh, we kind of crushed her. I mean, she, she sang a song asking a question, what, what if God was here? In the flesh. What difference would that make if, if God was 
like us, one of us. And instead of helping her understand this central doctrine of the church, namely the incarnation, that is that God becomes flesh, we crushed her. We, we named her. On the low end, she was inappropriate, but on the high end, she was a heretic. She was, she was tarnishing the sacredness of God and his son. And so we categorized her and we dismissed her. And people protested and picketed her concerts because she asked the question, what if God showed up? Would, would it make a difference? Would it make a difference? Well, I think her question's fair. I think her question's good. I think her question is really, really important. Now, the argument about the state and nature of, of, of God and his son Jesus and the state of nature of Jesus, this isn't a new sort of uh, idea or question. It is central to the gospel of, of Jesus. The state and nature of Jesus is central. His identity is central to this thing called Christianity, this, this, this thing called following Christ. In one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, John, one of the disciples, he begins his entire book saying this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is capitalized because it's talking about a person. It's talking about Jesus. And the word here is, the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the Word, logos, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made. In him was the life, and that life was the light to all of humanity. It begins with identifying Jesus as divinity. And then just a few verses later, in, in uh, verse 14 of chapter 1, he identifies not beyond his divinity, he speaks of his humanity. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says this, And then the word, the logos, became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. And we saw the glory with our own eyes. He's talking about we were his disciples. This one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. He's talking about the perfect unity between the father and the son. But the word, the divine, becoming humanity. Generous inside and out. True from start to finish. And so this question, this, this subject, this controversy about the state and nature of Jesus is not something that starts in the 20th century. It actually starts with the person of Jesus. It starts... 2,000 years ago. And so uh, around 30 um, AD or CE, if you use common era, uh, Jesus uh, dies, is buried, is resurrected, ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And then the disciples launch this church, Peter and James and John. And they launch this church from, uh, uh, from into the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way through. Paul writes the majority of the New Testament uh, by the end of the 60s. And the last disciple um, dies, John, around 95 uh, A.D. at the end of that first century. And the interesting thing about the controversy of the state and nature of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, the argument was not whether or not Jesus was divine. The argument was whether or not Jesus was human. I mean, think about the arguments what we talk about Jesus today. We, if we have a, a conversation today, the argument is usually, well, um, there may have been a person named Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, but he's not God. Well, 2,000 years ago, it's the exact opposite. There may have been a God, but there's no way that he would take on flesh. 
So there's two great oppositions to the early church. The first is persecution, this, this physical uh, military um, destruction of this um, religious group called uh, the Way. Now, in the early church, Christians weren't identified as Christians, as this church. They were identified as of people, followers of the Way, this movement that came out of Judaism, um, and, uh, but the Jewish church didn't want them, and the Roman government didn't really want them either. And so in 64 AD, Nero, uh, Rome catches on fire, and Nero blames the Christians. And then for the next 250 years, through the tyrants, uh, many tyrants of, of, of emperors, from Nero to Diocletian to Marcus Aurelius, there is this massive, physical, murderous persecution of the church. Last for 250 years. Now, there are times during this where the wave would kind of cease and there would be a lull in the persecution. Maybe even an emperor who um, didn't participate too much, but soon enough the next one would come and it would just be a horrible wave. Now, there's um, uh, arguments about the numbers of Christians who died in those first three centuries. There's arguments about how many Christians actually existed in the Roman Empire, but it's okay and probably safe to assume that by the middle of the 4th century, there was uh, nearly 7 million Christians in the Roman Empire. So in the first three centuries, there are 7 million Christians. And perhaps 2 million have been killed. Perhaps 2 million Christians had been killed. Why? Because they wouldn't bow to Caesar. They wouldn't pledge allegiance to the king because the ethic of their faith said Jesus alone is Lord. And there's other reasons why, but that is central to it, is that the early church stood for this idea that Jesus alone was Lord, not Caesar. And they were an easy target, and they didn't have an army, and they weren't defending themselves. They weren't running away. And the tyrants just kept going after them. The strange thing, though, is that though these tyrants kept taking the lives by crucifixion and and burning at the stake or feeding them to lions, even though they kept doing, the church just kept moving as if it was really on its way. That's why Tertullian, the second century historian, aptly noted, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. By their death, the church is taking seed and blooming and moving on its way. So that was the first great oppression. The second great oppression, though, was not physical. It was not military. It was actually theological, philosophical, and spiritual. There were these voices being kind of birthed out on the margins of Judaism and Christianity that began to rise uh, at the end of the first century but really took root in in the beginning and the middle of the second century. And this, um, these theological controversies didn't just show up at the door of the church, but it actually started like making its way into the church. In a grand general sense, these heresies are referred to as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. Now, I was talking to Kurt Graves after first service, and he said, the first rule of Gnosticism is don't talk about Gnosticism. The second rule of Gnosticism is don't talk about Gnosticism because Gnostics don't, are not in agreement even about what this thing is. And if whoever, you can talk to 10 Gnostic teachers, they're going to tell you 10 different things. It is wide. And those on the right and those on the left don't have much in common. But there is a little bit of a, a common core. 
And the common core is that knowledge is special and secret and hidden and revealed to only a very, very small select few. You can't ask for it. You can't look for it. You can't find it. It finds you, and when it does, it enlightens you. Because deep within some of us is this thing called a divine spark. And, 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 if, and if the knowledge, the special hidden knowledge shows up, you become enlightened and you become the bearer of truth. And so all these traditional ways that uh, they were learning and understanding and education and politics and training and mentoring and school, all these ways that all these teachers were teaching by sacred writings and oral history uh, and, and, and about God's word, all of those common ways, they're futile and rubbish unless the teacher is enlightened. And so all of these ways that we can learn and understand who our world is and who our God is, unless they're Gnostic special knowledge teachers, their information's rubbish and useless. But the enlightened few, ah, that's where the truth is. And this meshes well with this Greco-Roman, philosophical, multi-God, spiritual, um, do anything to your body, everything is okay. Like, it kind of meshes well in this time. And so Gnosticism is not being attacked, and the church is. Now, one of these teachers is a man named Valentinius. And Valentinius is um, teaching his form of Gnosticism in in Gaul, which is now France, and particularly uh, in this city called Lyon. And in Leon, there's a man named um, uh, uh, Irenaeus. He's the bishop of Leon. And there's a nice picture of him. Um, of, there's Irenaeus, like a handsome little dude there, right? You know, and so I know there's a bunch of pregos in the building. And so you're thinking, oh, what should we name our kid? You know, Bob or Fred or George. No, Irenaeus is a great name, okay? That's just a little side note. That's not my notes. That's free. Just write that down. Look at him. He could grow up and look like that. Handsome. Irenaeus becomes the bishop of Lyon in 177. He becomes bishop because the bishop that was in Lyon was killed and martyred under the rule of Marcus Aurelius. And so this position has been made available, and it's offered to him, and he takes it. And he takes it knowing that death is right around the corner. We don't know much about Irenaeus. He's born sometime between 115 and 140 in the second century. But we know he, di- we know he dies in 202 as a martyr. He takes the position 177, and so for 25 years, he devotes his life as a pastor, as a theologian, as a missionary, as a defender of the gospel of Jesus. And his goal is to preserve the gospel. It's interesting. He writes this book called Against Heresies, and it starts writing about 180 and finishes it uh, at the end of his life. It's five volumes. It's this massive tone. It's probably the first systematic theology that we have. But in Against Heresies, his argument is not against the state. His argument about the preservation of the gospel is not how to defend themselves against Rome, how to uh, take up arms against your oppressor, uh, how, to, um, how, to, how to sneak or flee or hide or get away. The argument in Against Heresies is not against Rome. It's almost as if Irenaeus is really recognizing that death is part of his reality. And it's part of this culture. It's part of the reality. It's part of the future of the church. And so he doesn't, he's just, that's not his argument. In fact, he says this in Against Heresy about death. He says the business of the Christian is nothing else but to be ever preparing for death. 
And so for 25 years, though, so knowing that he's living in the shadow of this persecution, he believes that his call in life is to preserve the gospel. Theologically. But not to protect himself or protect his body against the state. And so Valentinius is teaching his own form of Gnosticism, and it looks a little bit like this. Let's think of a celestial sun. And out of that sun comes these things called emanations. Um, and they're like beams of the ray beams. And they call them aeons. And there's 30 beams, 30 aeons that come out of this pure spirit beam. And these things that glow out of it are these 30 particular aeons. And they're ordered and there's a hierarchy. And of these 30, and this world is perfect, spiritually perfect. But one of these beams is Sophia. It's the Greek word for wisdom. She's number 12. She's not a major in the hierarchy. She's kind of a minor. Sophia has a wicked thought. Her wicked thought is that she wants to know more than she's allotted to know. And this wicked thought cannot take root in this perfect spiritual world, so it's expelled. And as it's expelled, that wicked thought becomes the basis of the entire physical cosmos. That wicked thought creates the stars and the planets and the moon and the earth and the water and the trees and our bodies. And all of those pieces of material are evil and wicked. And the goal, if there is a goal, a salvific goal, it's that if you have the divine spark, that someday it will leave the despicable, disgusting, evil, wicked tomb of flesh and be reabsorbed back into the spirit world. And so the, the worldview to Valentinius is that pure spirit falls, then creates wicked. And salvation is to flee and escape back to the spirit world. And so God, if there is a God, Yahweh of the Old Testament and these writers, disciples, New Testament, early church, if there is a God called Yahweh, he would never be one of the 30 emanations. He would be way, 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 way low, and he wouldn't be divine. And he wouldn't be divine because Yahweh is seen as a creator of material, and if you create material, then you're wicked. And so God is not a supreme good deity. He's at best a wicked angel pretending to be God but being evil himself. And at the heart of this Gnostic teaching of Valentinius is that the body is wretched and useless. And God, perfect, pure spirit, would never, ever, ever become flesh. Because to do so would be wicked. And so Irenaeus recognizes how this smacks in the face of the gospel of the story of God and his son Jesus. Because in the beginning was God and he was good and perfect and pure. And he creates and it's good. And not only does he create material and matter in the world that we know and see, he creates us, his special creation. And out of that, humanity falls. And so God ushers in salvation, not hoping that maybe the divine spark will flee and enter back and be reabsorbed in the spirit world, but that actually because of faith in God through his son Jesus, who forgives us of our sins and, right, and, 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 and cancels uh, our debt and builds us back into right relationship with God, because of all that, the end of our lives is not that we would escape this tomb called flesh 
and be angelically reabsorbed into a heavenly angelic spirit world. No, no, no. Irenaeus got this right in the second century. The goal of us is at the end of our lives that we would be resurrected. That our bodies, our material, would be made right and whole again. And Irenaeus believed if this creeps into the church, we're in trouble. So he is going to spend the rest of his life defending the gospel against this teaching. And so he writes this book against heresies, and it's big, and it's, it's thick, and it covers the totality of the scriptures, the totality of theology, from Valentinius and his Gnosticism all the way through the doctrine of the end times. The, the foundation of Irenaeus' argument, though, is not some hidden message, not some secretive message, not some message that's not made public, not some message that's been confirmed by the community and by the church, but he believes that the root of his argument is, is the scriptures themselves. And so he goes back to the scriptures and he begins to trust the, of the authority and the consistency and the clarity of God's word. He writes this. He says, we, being most properly assured that the scriptures are perfect, Since they were spoken of the word, the logos of God in the spirit, we shall both preserve our faith uninjured. The scriptures are going to keep us safe. We shall continue without danger. And all scripture which has been given to us by God shall be found by us perfectly consistent. And so he's going to root his entire argument in the clarity and the authority and the consistency of God's word, which is not hidden, but is made for all to hear and all to see and all to read and all to know. It's not for a select few. It's for anybody. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So Irenaeus is driven back to the scriptures, the Old Testament, and the gathering of the new writings. The New Testament hasn't, won't be put together for another couple hundred years, but he's getting writings and letters from the disciples, from the apostles of John and Peter and Paul. And he is confirming the profundity of these texts. And he's gathering them all up, and he's building his theology based on these holy writings. And he gets Paul, and he gets Romans. And he reads in the beginning, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that word for shame in the, in the, in the Greek is, is uh, it, it, there's sort of three different categories of what that word can mean. And the first one is that shame, emotion, shame, ashamed. But the second two are to dishonor or to disfigure. And Irenaeus stands up and says, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to dishonor and disrespect it. And I'm not going to disfigure it. To disfigure something is to do, is to cause harm, to tear something down and to make it ugly. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to be ashamed of this. I'm going to stand and it probably will cost me my life. But I'm not ashamed of this. I cannot dishonor or disfigure this. And then he gets to Romans 5. Paul's, um, Paul, Paul writes this book called, uh, his letter to the Romans, and it's often referred to as Paul's opus, his high theological work, sometimes called the cathedral of the Christian faith. And this just resonates with Irenaeus. And he begins to like just sit and root himself in this. Because in Romans 5, uh, Paul begins to defend that, that Jesus was both God and man. And there was a necessity for Jesus to take on flesh. And this just, this is it for Irenaeus. And so what I want to do just for the next few minutes, I just, I want to read this passage from Romans 5. It's kind of long. And I just want to sit with it and maybe make a few comments along the way. 
but I really want us to absorb this. I really want this to like rest on us. I really want us to find this to be good for us. Begins this. He says, you know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma. Oh, this is uh, Peterson's message again. Brilliant, beautiful theological paraphrase of the scriptures. You know the story about how Adam landed us in this dilemma. We were in first sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God and everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spells it out in detail to Moses. So he begins, he says, you remember our first parent, Adam, God's special creation, sins and falls. And that disturbance disturbed everything and everyone. So it disturbed relationships with one another, relationships with God, and relationships with the material world. But we, he says, but the, the, the clarity of, this, of the abyss between God and man wasn't really known until Moses because Moses brings us the law. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, I get it. Okay, we're starting to, uh, we're starting to uh, qualify all of this. So he says, so death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this death, this termination of life, this separation from God. And so he says, Adam sins specifically. And humanity doesn't sin the same sins, but that was passed down to all people. And all of us violate the law and the command of God. And it puts us in this abyss, this separation. He says, but Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who's going to get us out of this. Continues and says this, yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin puts crowds of people at the dead end, abyss of separation from God, just think of what God's gift poured through one Man, Jesus, the Christ, humanity, divinity. Just think what will happen through one man and what, what will come from that. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on the one sin was death sentence. The verdict on many sins that followed is this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery that life can make? A sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man, Jesus the Christ, provides. Shame enters the story. But that's not the end of the story. Dishonor enters the story. It's not the end of the story. Disfigurement enters the story, and it's not the end of the story. And so Paul continues. He says, hey, here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble and sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. Person. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong, but one man said yes to God and put many in the right. And it continues, all that passing laws against sin, all it did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. 
When it's sin versus grace, grace wins. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins. Hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. But grace, let's sit in this. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, divine and human invites us into a life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. And so what is God's gospel plan of salvation rooted in the book of Romans, confirmed by Paul, celebrated by Irenaeus? Is that one man, a person, fully human, matter and material, Jesus the Christ, fully divine, the word and the logos that existed from the beginning, came to us in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful mystery. The state and nature of our Messiah was man and God. And why? It is good for our salvation. Irenaeus affirms that God is one, that the Father and the Son are beautifully, beautifully put together. And Irenaeus affirms that the word becomes flesh, It didn't come near flesh. It didn't come by flesh. It didn't rest over flesh, but it actually became flesh through Mary, umbilical cord and all. Because Irenaeus deeply believed that without the incarnation, without the incarnation of God becoming flesh, there could be no salvation of our bodies. There could be no salvation of our flesh. If there's no incarnation, that God could not truly know or understand us in our reality. That without genuinely experiencing life on earth with skin on it, without the incarnation, there could be no real salvation. For if Jesus didn't suffer, how can he know our pain? If Jesus didn't suffer, why should we suffer? If God would fly away or flee from us at the time of our crisis, how can he walk with me in my crisis? When I weep, how can he weep with me? When I bleed, how can he bleed with me? When I hurt and ache, how can he comfort me? Maybe the most famous saying that Irenaeus ever said was this quote, and it's this, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. You know why? Because God was fully alive. And in Christ, you and I get to be made fully alive. How does he suffer with us? Because he suffered. How does he walk with us in our pain and crisis? Because he walked in pain and crisis. How does he weep with me? Because he wept. How does he hurt with me? Because he hurt. How does he ache with me? Because he ached. How does he redeem us and lead us to places of restoration? Because he too was redeemed and restored by the Father. And frankly, after the month that we've had, the week that we've had Vegas, Texas and Florida and Puerto Rico I'm aching I'm aching there's all kinds of triggers going off in my life about, about pain and crisis in my past that just keeps resurfacing And I watch TV, and I ache. And I need my God to feel me. 
and I need my God to comfort me. I need my God to show up to my flesh. And I need him to rescue me and redeem me and restore me and put his arms around me and comfort me and tell me it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. The last line in that passage we read is it said grace wins. So as I studied this week and was getting ready and praying through some things this week, kind of got stuck on that last line that as he's talking about Jesus, the one Paul finishes with this idea of grace. And what is grace? Grace is um, God's beautiful, absolute, perfect love for us, a love that we don't deserve. Not a love that we can go find. Not a love that's super secret, it's hidden under some rock out in the woods. No, grace is God's love that he freely gives to us. Not because we earned it or can do anything about it, but he just gives it to us. And that love saves us. That love forgives us of our sins and reconciles us to God. That's grace, and grace wins. I just got stuck on this word grace, grace. And I kept thinking of this refrain, I need your grace. I need your grace. I need that love to show up. I need that love to show up. I need that incarnation. I need, I, I need. My heart, my soul, my body, the ache, and I need. And I was reminded of a, a film that was made in 2010 after the uh, earthquake in Haiti. Some filmmakers uh, made this film, and they used a song called Lament by this band, the Robbie C. Band. And Robbie C. is a guy that I had worked with years ago. And I, and I was reminded of this, and I went back to this film and just kept watching this film over um, about the Haiti earthquake. And I realized um, the profundity of this piece. And we opened our, our time together with this lament. What if God was one of us? Well, well, the scriptures show that he did. And it does matter. But our lament doesn't end. We're still lamenting. And we need his grace. And we need God to show up. And so what I'm going to do is that we're just going to close uh, this piece by having us listen uh, to the song and, and watch this film. I really want this to, to soak in and, and to fall afresh on this. The lines say things like, we've seen mothers bury sons and we're begging you to come. God, come. The broken fill our towns and the hopeless shout aloud, we cannot wait, we cannot wait, we cannot wait, we cannot wait. I need your grace, I need your grace, and I need your grace. And it goes on and on and on. And at the end it says, and, and, and the reason that grace comes is because you are here, God, and your kingdom is here. So rescue us from what we've done. Help us move and be love. Save us now from all we've done. We've seen mothers bury sons, and we're begging you to come. Come. Now, I know the imagery is seven years old, but I think we're qualified and smart enough to translate our pain. So let us watch this and look at this. Let us continue in our lament that God would come and that he would restore and that he would rescue. Watch this with us. So, there is, is this on? So there's a lot going on in the life of the church. We want to make you um, aware of some things. Any details that you need, information, beyond even what we talk about, you can go to the skinny and find out all kinds of stuff that's happening soon and happening later. Later, karaoke. Oh, yeah, have another karaoke night. The men's retreat. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. A couple announcements, though, I want to get through real quick uh, that, are, that are really important to us. One, loading dock.
This is a conversation that we're going to have after church next week. Upstairs, there's childcare and there's food, which is awesome, and there's no Panther game, which is awesome. The Panther games are great, but it won't keep you, which it has in the past, from participating in the Lord's work, you know, to go watch football. And so we will provide you food and lunch and childcare. This is a chance for us to have a conversation about what warehouse is, who warehouse is, what our goals or dreams, where we want to go, what's central to us. And in that conversation is an invitation to become a part of that. Um, and so we would, re- if you're um, wrestling or thinking through that, please come, and we'd love to spend the afternoon with you, or just a couple hours with you, not the whole afternoon. Also, there's a listening event coming up, and this is great. Uh, Nate Ledbetter, our pastor just back there, he's the, he's the handsome one wearing a shirt that says, love everyone, which is so awesome. Uh, Nate is um, hosting, the, it's the same day, and it's the same child care. So we'll provide child care. Nate, you having food? He's having food, too. And there's no Panther game, and that's going to be awesome. So come and hang out. This is for people that have been investing in our past here at Warehouse in justice pathways, in justice ministry. And, and Nate is gathering to have conversations about what's happened, what are you thinking about, what's percolating, what has been, what could be, and all the things that are happening inside these walls and outside these walls and bringing these conversations and listening to one another about where and how God is um, calling us to be involved in justice. And so that is going to be awesome. And I would encourage you, if you're part of our justice community, to be a part of that. But also next week, Wednesday, the glory of God is man fully alive. And that's because Jesus, the Word, the Logos, the Divine, became fully man and was fully alive. And he died and was buried and resurrected. And so for you, and so you can be fully alive. What if God was one of us? Well, you know what? He was. Preach it. He was one of us. And because of his grace, he invites us into a life, an everlasting, extravagant life. Because God has come near, he can be our comforter, our restorer, and our redeemer. So brothers and sisters of the warehouse, as you walk out the door today, may you go with a great sense of joy and peace and encouragement that your God is near, that your God is with, and he is for, and he is redeeming and restoring and reconciling all things. And he is in the business of resurrection. And that is good. So go in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Got some people ready to pray for you around the corner. If anybody needs some prayer, some percolation, uh, things are percolating, pray. And as you walk out, I want you to hear and feel the beauty of this.